0: It sort of, like, gave me permission to think that, like, no, you can do, like, substantial work that has, like, dick jokes.
1: (laughs) Brad Dunn. This is your mixtape. Why don't we call it Invisible Shackles? Hello, listener, and welcome to This is Your Mixtape, a podcast where, every episode, we take a close look at someone's life as told through music— I'm your host, Michael Collins, a gentle forest god. Today we're chatting with Brad Dunn. Brad is a writer from St. John's, Newfoundland. His debut novel, After Dark Vapours, tells a gothic werewolf story of intergenerational trauma through a post-colonial lens. His journalism has appeared in Maison Neuve, the Canadian Encyclopedia, and The Walrus. He recently launched his own podcast, Deconstruction Junction, where he uses philosophy to find unconventional readings of popular media. Brad and I talk about studying music as an insecure teenager, finding freedom in punk music, and rising above the limitations placed on you by yourself and by others. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey Brad, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. It's a great pleasure. So, as mentioned in the introduction, you just have a book out. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about the book and your background, what led you to write it, things like that.
0: So, the book is called After Dark Vapors. It's basically a a werewolf story set in Newfoundland and parts of Labrador. Basically, the story is about a young 20-something near-do-well who was raised by his mother, single mother, didn't know his father, and uh, comes to learn that the paternal side of his family carries this kind of werewolf curse. And through the story, he has to dig into the bones of his family history particularly on his dad's side and traces back to his grandfather who committed a terrible crime in Labrador during the sixties in the, um, residential school era. And, uh, it turns out that he committed this crime and offended a wolf God named Amarok and, uh, Amarok cursed the family, uh, with this, um, werewolf curse. And so he has to figure out how to, uh, undo the curse make right with Amarok and make right with his family basically so it's got some historical fiction that deals with the concept of intergenerational trauma um, on top of like good genre werewolf fun
1: yeah I was about to say it sounds like an intersection between genre fiction and post-colonial fiction
0: yeah definitely yeah
1: which is very interesting yeah so you're you're from newfoundland obviously i guess
0: yeah i grew up in and i live in mount pearl i usually just say st john's for uh (laughs) any of your non-newfoundland listeners no no one knows what mount pearl is outside of newfoundland really uh so i just say i'm from born and raised in st john's and and i live in in st john's mount pearl now
1: yes (laughs) but that difference mount pearl versus st john's is very important for the newfoundland listener oh yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely so why don't we get moving on to your first song
0: choice uh what what is it so the first song i chose is uh scar tissue by the red hot chili Peppers.
1: I remember this song quite clearly from my own youth, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your history with it?
0: So I chose this song because it really marks a big transition point for me in my life. I kind of, like, recognize it as uh, the transition from childhood into, like, a teenager, I guess I would say, mostly because it's a song that made me want to pick up and play guitar, um more specifically uh the music video really made me want to play guitar um i mean the song is, is 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 a great song i still love this song it has like a really really special place in my heart but i remember watching the video and i think my first thought was like oh it's the guys from red out chili peppers they cut their hair and now they look like responsible adults or something <laughs> but uh the the john for the guitar player when he plays the solo uh, especially at the end with that like beat-up Fender Stratocaster.
1: I think it's actually got a broken neck, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, it's kind of, like, split in half and the body is, like, cracked. And and then, you know, at the end, he just, like, throws it off the car and it kind of bangs on the highway. I just thought that was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life.
1: Were you particularly familiar with the band before this? Like you, you mentioned their image change, but had you been a fan before?
0: Well, like one of the reasons why I chose the song too, is I feel like it kind of marks the diff- the change from being like a passive music consumer to like an active, I guess you would say, because like a lot of kids, I guess I would say that most of my music consumption came from much music or the radio or whatever my parents were playing. So that was kind of when I decided that I wanted to be a Chili Peppers fan. So I actually went out and bought the CD. It was one of the first CDs I ever bought with my own money. I was uh I was like twelve or thirteen at the time when I first saw this. But really I was just familiar with the Chili Peppers from like their other music videos, stuff like Give It Away and uh Aeroplane and they were kinda of like one of those bands well, I mean, my parents were always pretty strict, but they were, like, one of the bands I wasn't supposed to listen to type thing because they sung about sex and drugs and all that fun stuff. But I um, can
1: remember their reputation was being quite um, quite sexual, <laughs> was my perception at the time.
0: <laughs> Whenever I think of the Chili Peppers, I think about their cameo in The Simpsons when Krusty <laughs> the Clown comes and says, Hey, guys, the censors, they got to change the lyrics. We don't change your lyrics for anything, man. And he's like, well, how about instead of what I really want to do is... Uh, hug and kiss, <laughs> what I really wanted to do was hug and kiss you, and they're like, oh, that's so much better, everyone can everyone enjoy that, can
1: enjoy that. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, so all I was really familiar with was like their reputation on much music, and then uh, and that made me want to become a fan and pick up their music, and then I got more into it but I think what really uh, sealed the deal was that uh, I heard uh, this girl that I had this like massive crush on she was like humming the song, "Scar Tissue so then I was like, well, I gotta I gotta pick up the guitar and try and learn it. That's what I ended up getting guitar for my thirteenth birthday
1: mm-hmm so this doesn't have to be an either or question it can be a both but i'm interested in the balance between the two so you heard this guitar solo and it uh you saw him playing it on this sort of beat up guitar in this you know, music video and it really struck you it made you want to pick up the guitar and learn how to use it yourself and so i'm thinking about the solo as a piece of music and you know the very clean tone the you know it's it's very evocative um and then also Wanting to impress a girl, so how much of it was an aesthetic response, and how much of it was an adolescent um, romantic sexual response?
0: It's yeah, it's definitely an and both, not an either or. Like um, the Freudian answer is like, well, everything is sexual. I <laughs>
1: everything <laughs> is misdirected libidinal yeah. energy, yeah, of course. Exactly.
0: So I think, like, looking back now, I don't think I would have said this when I was a kid, but when I when i started playing guitar i was like terribly terribly insecure um Mm -hmm. didn't have my own confidence you know i definitely couldn't sing like i definitely wouldn't have sang um so i think my my fascination with guitar was that like this thing could do the talking for me and as as like the the seal the deal bonus is that girls (laughs) seemed to be very responsive to that and uh and even like like my guy friends were were responsive too like they're impressed by this and at the time um I never really thought of myself as like good at anything I was always like just average like I was like okay at sports I was okay at school I was okay at drawing nothing I really like felt like I excelled at um but then when I picked up guitar I had this like immediate aptitude for it that I'd never experienced before. And when I was like a teenager in high school and stuff, I was always kinda like the best guitar player of my peer group. Um and I remember my first guitar teacher uh told me that I had hands perfectly suited for guitar because I have like these big palms and I could grip the neck and use my thumb to make chords. But my fingers are kinda short and stubby, so that makes them more dexterous now I don't know if that's true. I don't know if there's like an ideal hand for guitar i mean you know Django reinhardt's one of the great guitar players he only had two working fingers um so i he might have just told me that just to give me confidence and it definitely worked you know because then i just sort of thought wow i can I, i have a i have this natural ability that i can i can play guitar and people will people will respond to it and uh it could be my voice instead of me talking or trying to sing i could i could talk through the guitar kind of thing.
1: Yeah." And this is something about guitar solos that I have thought about, like even when there's a lot of effects put on them, which isn't the case here it's a fairly it's a fairly clean kind of a tone it They have sort of a a singing or speaking kind of feeling to them, like you can sing along to a guitar solo quite well when you're driving in the car or whatever like it feels like a voice,
0: yeah, exactly, and one of the interesting like i guess I would say fortuitous. Uh, things about about this song and the whole album californication because it was really the album that taught me music in a way like i bought it to specifically learn to play guitar so i could play these songs and um it, it, when i first got it i thought this is going to be like um like a goal like after a couple months maybe i can start kind of playing it when my guitar teacher said no this is all very simple stuff that you can you can play it very easily and uh so that was awesome that that here was this music it, it's like like fate almost you know what i mean like mm-hmm. here's this album that i'm turned on to and i can learn right off the bat um and so apparently like digging into the history is that um uh, john frusciante rejoined the band at this point and um his chops were, were not there because he'd just been recovering from a very severe heroin addiction and was out of practice. So they went into the studio and he just played these simple chords and melodies because that's all he could really do as opposed to the like more shredding stuff he was known for. Um, he just played a very stripped down style of playing, which was great because as a beginner I could, I could play these songs and it was exactly what I needed.
1: Yeah. It's a happy accident that he he was holding back on the technical side for practical reasons. And that give you a good entry point.
0: Yeah. Like there's, um, I tried to think of songs that kind of like came into my life at these special moments um, Mm -hmm. that like, you know, as a reader too, I've read books in my life that I look back and I'm like, wow, like that song or that book came into my life at the exact moment I needed it to. Um, And it's like, I don't, I'm, you know, an atheist and all that stuff, but it's like really one of those things that makes you believe in some kind of fate, you know? Or at least that's just the the magic of art and, and it, it feels like fate sometimes.
1: Yeah. So I'm thinking about you being twelve, thirteen, um, being kind of average in most things, encountering this song and getting into this band and really becoming an enthusiastic and skilled guitar player and that gave you confidence, I believe you've said. So who were you, like, I don't know, about a year after this? Um, how had it changed you beyond just more confident?
0: In a good way, like, yeah, there's the confidence. Um, I <laughs> I started looking at music in a very utilitarian way, let's say, like very like guitar not just guitar-centric. I'll give myself some credit. Like I did like music for the um the instrumentation of it. Like I definitely sought out all those like guitar magazine bands and um and listening to like rock music and uh i became one of the <laughs> it's a good thing that like youtube and facebook wasn't on the go back then because i totally would have <laughs> been one of those kids like new music sucks and music died in the seventies and I'm only 14, but I like this stuff. Give me, you know, give me validation.
1: Just yearning for approval. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Like give me approval. Like that's kind of how I started defining myself. Cause I think like for so many years up until my mid twenties, I'm sure a lot of people experience this is like, I so desperately sought like identities that I could give myself, you know? Right. And so when I became good at guitar, like that became my identity. And I was like, man, like, pop music sucks because it doesn't have good guitar solos.
1: (laughs) So, so I, I was a very skilled pianist when I was a teenager. So it was a slightly different form of musical snobbery, but I've spoken to enough people over the course of doing this show to kind of have reinforced a theory that I already had going. And that is if you have a teenager who is very musically skilled, they will really perhaps overvalue technical proficiency when that's not what most people are responding to when they listen to music, they, they like the way the song makes them feel. And it doesn't matter if that solo was really difficult to pull off or
0: not. Oh yeah. I a hundred percent agree. Like, It's funny because so much of why I picked up the guitar was to, like, impress girls. Mm -hmm. But then (laughs) I wasn't, like, playing the stuff that would impress girls. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it was more like, what are, like, my bros who listen to metal? Like, what do they (laughs) think about my guitar playing? It's It's like, like, wow,
1: (laughs) your fingers are like an over-caffeinated spider.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think, like, uh, at one point in high school, I was, like, dating this girl. And I I was playing her, like, I don't know if you know who Dream Theater are they're like yeah this like excessive prog metal band and i was like man this is like song is awesome and she was like this is like music that people who play instruments listen to <laughs> and it, like, it like, blew my mind because I was like, wow, I never thought of it like that. Like, you're totally, I didn't admit this at the time, but I was like, yeah, she was totally right. Like, this is just mm-hmm. like stuff that band geeks like, you know.
1: I think I'm going to steal that music that people <laughs> who play instruments listen to. That's great because that's just nails it. Perfect. Yeah. Great. So what song do we have up next?
0: So the next song is uh, The Decline by No Effects.
1: vaguely familiar with no i've never really listened to um any of their albums but you know my brother would sometimes play some of their songs around me so i sat down to listen to this and i thought to myself after about five or six minutes it's like how what did i did i accidentally (laughs) load the full album and i kind of did (laughs) Because it's 18 minutes long, and it's an EP that's one track. Am I right about that? You are correct, yeah. <laughs> All right, so why don't you tell me a little bit about this?
0: Yeah, so this song is a doozy. Um, I So my punk phase started in, uh, I was going to say my last year of high school. I was a pretty angry kid, and I think at the time, I thought I was angry about politics. And that kind of like really didactic punk music kind of gave me that outlet. Um, But really I was um, angry at like the invisible shackles that were kind of holding me back, which I couldn't give words to at the time. Um, So I went through this big punk phase and my first year university went terribly. Uh, After my first semester uh, I didn't get very good grades because I would say like a lot of people, I came into university with terrible study habits Mm -hmm. uh was just about like cramming last minute and uh so i was unhappy with university and then all the stuff about being angry and those invisible shackles i ended up falling into like a very severe clinical depression and this is around winter of 2005 so i ended up dropping out of school to focus on um Just getting my mind right and uh so when i dropped out i had all this time on my hands so i was like well i try to be productive so i'm going to try and learn the decline on guitar and uh, like i said again this like fortuitous moment where i was learning the song and a couple buddies of mine were in a band and they had just kicked out another friend of mine and they were looking for another guitar player and they learned that I was like learning the song and they wanted to play the song too. So then they were like, well, why don't, you know, we get together and we'll play it. And then I ended up joining the band and like this, like punk band, you know, pretty much probably saved my life, you know, uh, in terms of like the severe depression. And, um, because I'd wanted to play in a band. Ever since I started playing guitar, I wanted to be creative. I wanted to make songs and stuff. But it never really got off the ground. I couldn't find the right mix of people. And, you know, Mount Pearl, St. John's is a small town. Um, So then uh, to get in this band and then uh, to finally have the ability to play songs. And we wrote our own songs. And um, it was just an incredible moment in my life. And again, look back, it's like fate that I was learning this song. At the same time, they happened to be learning it. You know, and then the things aligned and i and I joined and um and so that was personally very uh, freeing for me that I got to do all these things that were like pent up inside me, but also as like a creator, it really taught me a lot of lessons about like precious notions of creativity and thinking that like you know a piece of art comes out of your brain like a, like athena like a form fully formed thing. You know, but like when you at least—I mean, I don't know how other bands wrote their music—but we got together. It was very like, oh, I got this idea for a song. And you're playing, and you're like, no, that's stupid. Let's do something different. And it was just very, um, very not precious. <laughs> we'll mm-hmm. say,
1: yeah, you can't be in love with your first draft.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that was uh, that was a great le- some great lessons to learn that helped me with a lot of things
1: moving forward. Have those lessons transferred over to your writing
0: oh 100 percent. like the well, the first lessons that it transferred were when i went back to university and, and like you said you can't fall in love with your first draft and it ended up uh, allowing me to do like an english and philosophy degree because i was no longer scared of that first draft right you know you just get in there and and figure it out as you go
1: <laughs> I, I think shitty first drafts is a good motto so
0: yes like i went on to work at the writing center at my university and uh for a couple of years i helped run it and like i, I call myself like the uh proselytizer of the first draft because so many people um it's that like perfectionism you know and i think a lot of people approach writing where it's like okay well the first thing is the introduction And I'm going to agonize over this introduction when really the introduction is like the last thing you should write, Mm -hmm. you know, like you got to embrace that messy first draft so you can find what it is you're actually trying to say and then go back and polish it.
1: It's kind of, I guess, being kind to yourself and realizing that, you know, your first stab at something is going to have rough parts and bad parts. And that's what the revision process is for, you know, um, people aren't brilliant on the first try almost ever occasionally it'll happen if someone's a genius or very lucky but it's rare you know
0: yeah i, I i'm convinced that just like straight up never happens yeah I, I can only imagine like that scene in amadeus where salieri sees the rough drafts of mozart's music and is can't believe it's like rough draft but mm-hmm. that's mozart and yeah. who knows if that's even real like maybe that's just a scene for the movie
1: yeah yeah so i'm interested a few things that you said when you were describing to me your journey to this song um well first of all the band that you joined to play it you guys did it live we
0: did yeah we did live a couple times
1: a lot of workout holy crap
0: yeah it was uh we were like 18 19 20 years old so we were like too <laughs> stupid to realize probably how difficult it was
1: you must have had very well defined forearms. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's uh, the the punk muscles in your in your wrist, and your elbow, and our poor drummer. Holy crap! But uh, we were aided by uh, some some chemical. Uh, yeah, yeah. Substances Still inside. though, I would love
1: I'd love to get him to step on a scale before and then after you sweat out five pounds. i bet.
0: I'd <laughs> uh, I'd like to weigh the audience because that song kills. Mm-hmm. Like nobody thinks you're going to play that song. Yeah, especially in like punk circles. Anyone who's familiar with that song doesn't think anyone would ever perform it. Uh, and I remember, we're like, there was, like, rumors. They were, like, oh, man, that band, they want to play The Decline. Mm-hmm. And so when we actually played it, it's such a high. Like, everyone just, like, they it's like they saw Santa Claus. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's like oh, man, Santa Claus is here. And then for, like, 18 <laughs> minutes, everyone was just losing their minds. And I, like, I don't, I don't think anyone in that audience put them on a treadmill for 18 minutes. They couldn't do it. But you play the song, and it's, like, suddenly so everyone's doing a circle pit for 18 minutes straight. So uh cool.
1: Well, I mean, th- that is the power of music. Like, and I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a total gym rat, and music is necessary because when your brain wants to quit it's like no the music so, yes. yes exactly yeah. so uh now the thing that really jumped out to me when you were describing that though that was a little bit of an aside um when you're talking about you are an angry kid and you thought it was political anger which is you know valid like when you become a teenager and you realize the world is the way it is anger is a very reasonable response um but you said that you think that the anger was also at the invisible shackles that were holding you back that you couldn't kind of articulate at the time. Um, so what were those
0: invisible shackles? Like the like I mentioned before, as a young man and really up until pretty recently, I was so desperately clinging to like identities. And I think, you know, growing up, uh, part of the reason why, like I said before in, in scar tissue with, uh, you know, feeling average about at, at everything. Um, I think like both kids are like, yeah, whatever sports, like I'll go play soccer. It's fine. But like my family was very, uh, like they're very sports driven and, uh, they're very like, I, I love my family. I'm like, uh, I look up to them probably a little too much. Uh, but and part of this is probably that I'm also adopted um so like my sister is just one of those people that can just do anything like she was an incredible athlete she won so many awards like in newfoundland if you win female soccer player of the year you win what's called the raylene dunn award that's how good she was right like so she was um just towering as as an athlete and great student and now she's like a physiotherapist and she runs her own business and, and she's a exceptional entrepreneur. She's won entrepreneur. So everything she does is like just, she she's just got that Midas touch. And so like I'm growing up looking up to her and I feel like I don't have that Midas touch, you know uh, I'm not an exceptional student. Uh, I'm like, okay at sports, but even more than that, like, I didn't have the passion for it like my sister and my dad does. My dad is also an amazing athlete. Like my dad, uh, he won- actually won the Tele 10 back in the 70s. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, the Telly 10 is like a 10-mile race in Newfoundland. It's pretty much like the running event in the province. Oh, absolutely. So then, like, my my, my family, like, they have this, like, view of the person you should be to have success in life. Right. And that's like, oh, you get into sports and, you know, you do well in school and you get a nice job. And and uh, they're very, I don't want to, it's not like uh, some like melodramatic teen movie where like the dad is like some has been coach who's like flipping out at me because it's like, you got to live my dreams. But like you feel that pressure. And especially, I guess, where I'm adopted, I feel like a bit of an outsider in my own family. So like, and I'm also like a people pleaser just anyway. So I definitely wanted to like live up to what they wanted for me. The
1: the pa- the passive weight of expectation. Like they don't have to be nasty about it. They can be very supportive, but it's still there, you know?
0: Yeah, 100%. So like I think I was just very angry about that but didn't understand my anger. Like I'd want like I'd want to lash out at my family, but then I'd feel guilty about it because I did love them, but you know. Um so I think there was just like so much like that, and that 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 inner turmoil really just ate away at my confidence. You know, that's why I think I grew up as such a uh, like a lack of confidence as a kid, and also like uh, when I was young, uh, I was a pretty pudgy like fat kid, so I'd like I wasn't really good at sports. But then when I hit puberty, I like went from being this short little fat kid to like at the time I was tall and I was like very muscular and suddenly I was good at sports, but I feel like at that point the ship had sailed and I had such a like negative feelings about like being, you know, the slow kid and and having to be goalie in soccer. But then after I had puberty and kind of came into my own, I had, uh, I was actually pretty athletic and I was strong, Mm -hmm. but like I said, like I, uh, I all these years I developed uh, I'd become a nerd, you know, and I was more into comic books and guitar and and all this nerdy stuff. So it's like, well, if if I was ever going to be an athlete, I'm sorry, but that that ship has sailed now.
1: Like it's it's not just about physical ability; like you have to be have the passion for it, you know.
0: Yeah, um, I think, and just like this is probably side, but just looking back and the way that sports, the way sport, they have sports set up for kids is so uh, backwards, like um Malcolm Gladwell talks about this too but it's like you're you're picking kids in this time of their lives when they're still growing yeah so these kids at like 10 11 12 they're not great athletes they're just more developed for whatever reason maybe they are born earlier in the year maybe their genes or whatever but then you're picking these kids to be the all-stars and then not only are they being reinforced in terms of their confidence and stuff, but they're also getting extra coaching, you know, so like they're being primed for success when really the other kids are just being punished for being late bloomers yeah you know and and to kind of like make those decisions at that stage in life it's um it's crushing <laughs> like yeah um i think and everyone wants to talk about participation medals and, and blah 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 blah. but i think that's the kind of thing you want to look at like why are we why are like why are we putting kids in competition when we don't really even know what who they are as an athlete you know so like a kid might grow up in 14 15 suddenly they're this um extraordinary athlete but they have so many negative connotations with With sports that they just don't like, they don't want to. They don't want anything to do with it anymore, right? Exactly. So, do you still play in bands? Actually, we still we're we're playing uh, this Christmas because uh, so like a lot of like people in Newfoundland, everyone moves away for different periods and that kind of what happened to us uh so like we played consistently from 2005 till 2007 and then i moved away to ireland for a bit and then our singer moved away to alberta for a bit and the other guitar player moved away to pei for a bit and yada 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 and then through the years we've uh all been in the same place occasionally and we'll play so this christmas now the bass player he's moved to amsterdam Oh, wow! uh, so he lives in Amsterdam with his wife, and now they have a kid, so they have like a real life and family there um, but he comes home you know whenever he can and so two years ago, we played a christmas show and then now this year we're gonna play another one again. Do you have the date in the venue yes yeah, december twenty second at distortion, and our band is called demons d e hyphen m o n s
1: nice very good. Well, anyone who's in town should go check you out if into punk music. Are you going to play The Decline?
0: Not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I think we talked about it and we're like, there's no way we can relearn that song in time. Today. You're
1: not but, young men anymore. No,
0: exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that happens. So anyone who's coming to the show thinking you're going to see The Decline, just no. <laughs> I'm going to nip that expectation right in the butt. <laughs> All
1: right. So what's the next song that we have?
0: Uh, The next song is All The Things You Are by Joe Pass.
1: So I did not know that you were a very skilled guitar player before we began chatting today. So this selection makes even more sense to me right now because this is just wow from like a guitar point of view
0: it's incredible and we kind of discussed earlier about like um, music that only musicians like and kind of uh self like self-indulgent technical stuff like which i would classify dream theater as but i think like this song um it's from an album called virtuoso and the the virtuosity of his playing is very clear but i think that he kind of goes beyond that so Nietzsche talks about like Friedrich Nietzsche talks about like the Apollonian and the Dionysian and the Apollonian is that like technical uh musicianship we'll say in regards to music the skill whereas the Dionysian is uh is the unleashed id we'll say like just pure sonic experience sort of like uh, like Jimi Hendrix kind of thing and I think great jazz musicians reach the Dionysium by way of the Apollonian, we'll say. They become so technically proficient that they, like, leave it behind. You know, it's, it's almost like great musicians play like they don't know how to play an, an instrument. Like, that's how great they are. In the same way that, like, Jackson Pollock does his, uh, like, fractal painting or the way that um, uh, Picasso does his cubist work. Like, they, they paint like they don't know how to paint. And I think that's what Joe Pass does um, on in this song, particularly. I think when people think about jazz, it's like there's either like really weird technical consonant dissonant, or I should say dissonant music that no one would ever listen to, like black turtleneck, black sunglasses kind of thing. Or it's like really cringy, uh, Starbuck's tangy, music, yeah, star, like cool jazz and Starbucks. Mm-hmm. But I think in the song in Joe Pass, it's like he he really straddles between really beautiful consonant melodies and also like some really angular kind of dissonant stuff. And like, there's times when he's playing and it sounds like two guitar players, mm-hmm. right? Like just the way he. Plays uh, lines and melodies over chords at the same time, right? And not only is there beautiful melody and uh, complex chords, but there's also like a rhythm. Like it's almost like he's playing drums too, Um, all by himself. Like just one guitar in a room, right? And he's doing all these things. It's really extraordinary and just like beautiful music that I think is more accessible than probably than that experience that I had with Dream Theater and that girl, I think that like anybody who would give it a chance would like it.
1: Yeah, it, it's very melodic and the tone's very pleasant. But if you are, if you have a musical education or you're experienced musically, there's some very strange and interesting things he's doing there, which you know the lay listener may not pick up on. But basically, both can enjoy it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I started listening to jazz and playing jazz because um, after I dropped out of university and uh, started playing music with the band and really sort of said, like, well, I'm going to really dedicate myself to guitar because this makes me happy. And um, maybe I'll try and be some kind of professional musician. And so um, I started taking lessons from a guy named Kirk Newhook. He's a local uh, musician. I'm not sure if he's still really in the scene now, but he really started like the, the jazz festival in Newfoundland. And he's an excellent musician, and he really kind of showed me the ropes and got me interested in jazz. And uh, that's where I developed a taste for it. And, I, and it's probably the music that I listen to the most now, um, especially like that 50s era, uh, bop era of like, you know, when Miles Davis and John Coltrane. And those guys were really at the peak of their game. That's the kind of music I love, especially like doing work, because I find a lot of like vocal music distracts me while I'm trying to write and study.
1: Yeah, well, it's the the language center. Your brain hears the words, you know, so yeah, yeah. Uh, music with lyrics is more difficult to do listen to all you're writing absolutely
0: yeah what's interesting too is that uh so this song um when i when i listened to it, i was like this is like this is the level i want to reach like but then when i started digging into it i had this realization like i can't do this <laughs> like, <laughs> uh not in the sense that like i don't have the ability to do it mm-hmm. but just like it would it would kill the the fun for me yeah like i can't music theory as fascinating and rewarding as the study of it is, is just homework to me. It's like taking a cold shower. Like <laughs> you feel good for doing it and it's got all these great benefits, but man, like, I don't want to do that all the time, you know? Right, right. And it's just like, I, I realized that if I wanted to become the musician that I wanted to be, there was just a, a Delta of work that I had to cross that I was unwilling to and that was, like, a really, like, adult moment for me, I would say. Like, and it's kind of, like, I would pick the song as, like, um, almost when I, like, grew up in the sense that, like, it's, like, you know, it's it's okay to, like, just have an amateurish interest in something, right? And I think part of, um, like I said before, in terms of those, like, shackles, part of the, like, one of the, the big symptoms, we'll say, of insecurity, I think, is, like, all or nothing thinking. Mm-hmm. So, like, if I'm going to do something, it has to be perfect, right? Or, like, it, you can't do it. Like, any, any kind of, like, imperfection is is devastating. And so when I realized that I wasn't willing to put in the work to be the musician I wanted to be, at that moment, it was, like, a big thing of me letting go of that all-or-nothing thinking. You know, you don't have to just be this, like, great musician to enjoy music, right? Like, you can just, just play guitar and and um
1: you can be quite good at it and that's fine
0: (laughs) yeah and what i realized too was that when i looked at like writing and wanting to be a writer and like i didn't mind doing the work right like when i was like okay if i want to be a writer i need to read this and i need to and, and like put in the reps for for like writing bad stories and just getting better that didn't turned my stomach in <laughs> the way that like music theory did. So that was a time in my life when uh, I kind of like closed the door, I'll say on, on music and like opened the door to like literature, we'll say. And that, that song in particular uh, was really the, the driving force of that.
1: That makes a lot of sense to me. I had a similar trajectory in my life where I can remember I was sort of preparing to audition for music school and then I thought to myself, I don't, I don't like playing piano for more than 45 minutes to an hour at a time. And you need to practice for longer periods of time than that if you're going to be a professional. And I am as good as I want to be for my purposes at the moment. So yeah, that was, a, that was a similar sort of realization that, oh yeah, it's okay. <laughs> you're fine. Like you can sort of say this. I've reached as high of a level as I'm, as I need to for my own purposes. Um, so I was just wondering about, What's your relationship with jazz music uh,
0: now? Uh, like I said, like this is still I would say my like number one genre of music. But I think what really blows my mind about the genre of music is that I've probably been listening to it now for like twelve years, and I still feel like I've only like scratched the surface in terms of like the body of work. Um, it's so dense, and these guys are so prolific, and it's like miles davis has like 20 great albums you know like how many bands have that many good records uh and what's amazing too is that like in rock music um fans really like to fetishize like supergroups it's like oh man imagine if like john lennon and Jimi hendrix played together or something right (laughs) and uh usually these supergroups are terrible
1: (laughs) yeah the idea of john lennon and Jimi hendrix together is just my (laughs) mind flinches from it (laughs)
0: Although I think Jimmy could probably make it work because I think Jimmy was like a legit musician. Oh, Uh, sure. Yeah. But I think like a lot of like popular musicians, a lot of rock guys, like even like Eric Clapton and and these like quote unquote gods. I don't think they're like very good musicians. (laughs) Let's just be real. Like, you know, the jazz guys really look down on, on rock and rock and roll and 12 bar blues because it's like it's so simple um mm-hmm. i don't know if you've ever seen inside lewin davis um there's a part where like he's riding with uh john goodman who's a jazz musician and he's like oh yeah folk music what is that c g c d g right and uh so like with uh stuff like led zeppelin and uh and uh um, maybe not even the Beatles, but like a lot of their success depends on, I think like chemistry and just like, um, luck of like getting these guys together who really complement each other. Whereas with like the jazz musicians, they're great musicians, so they can play with each other regardless of chemistry, right? Because they just, they can, uh, look at a song and unpack it and put it back together eight different ways. So like, um, that's my dog making a racket there
1: now. <laughs> um, I can hear. Uh,
0: she's a big Newfoundlander, so she makes a of noise. <laughs> uh, so, like, you know, uh, talking about, like, oh, you mean John Lennon? But, like, Coltrane and Miles Davis play together all the time. They have, like, a couple records together, you know? And also, like, Thelonious Monk, and they all play together. So, like, there's so many records of these, these like... Giant, extraordinary musicians coming together to record. And that to me is like amazing.
1: Yeah. When I was researching for this chat, I read that Joe pass used to play with Oscar Peterson a lot. So
0: yeah. Like there's not many eras of music where these extraordinary musicians are coming together to perform, right? Like, you know, Bach and Beethoven never played together. Uh, <laughs> you know? So yeah. you have this absolute just uh, wealth, of music and recordings and uh you can spend a lifetime studying it right like um so there's just uh it's like an embarrassment of riches really
1: yeah. i mean i want to say in defense of rock and folk and so forth which are also genres i really like oh yeah. the the skill set there is very different it's um it's it's as you say it's chemistry it's it's about the ability to emote and it's almost a more writerly kind of craft, too, because, you know, lyrics are very important in that context. Whereas, yeah, there's a, there's a pure musicianship about jazz.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's what I love. And uh, it kind of speaks to, to like, uh, Schopenhauer. I think it was Schopenhauer. Either Schopenhauer or Nietzsche, but early Nietzsche, so they're kind of the same thing. <laughs> um, Talked about, like, why um opera is like a lesser form of music i don't really like agree with this but like they sort of said that like the 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 what is it the libretto is that what you call it Mm -hmm. that kind of takes away from the musicianship because it's almost like a crutch it's almost like the the libretto is like holding the audience's hand whereas like you know wagner uh, is like pure musicianship wagner (laughs) doesn't need uh a libretto or like well
1: well, he has them though uh
0: so like you know unaccompanied uh i don't know much about classical music but like you know non-vocal music we'll say is like pure music because it's uh it's beyond dialogue it's beyond uh uh, prose we'll say
1: yeah Uh, opera has words and characters that tell you how you're supposed to feel as opposed to the music doing it on its own
0: yeah exactly and that's kind of uh how i feel about jazz it's like it is that pure musicianship we'll say and it kind of gets back to the very first thing that drew me to guitar which is that i can speak through this guitar right like i don't have to use my own voice i can use uh the guitar and you know when i listen to like coltrane play it's like you're listening to this guy's soul like you know yeah
1: yeah exactly so what's
0: the next song that we have up uh, the next song is Sounds of Science by The, the Beastly Pe- Boys. I, eat, I got pegs to my head, head, warm to my feet, feet, shade, stadium, the radium, E and D square, kick out of the palatium. So I think that I can't, it's, it's the sound of science. So I picked this song kind of because it's like the sounds of my mid-twenties <laughs> kind of grad school. I, I've always liked the Beastie Boys uh, ever since I was a kid. Again, seeing their videos on much music. Absolutely. And uh, I mean they had amazing videos. It was always Sabotage, like,
1: intergalactic, yeah.
0: I just like... I remember whenever Sabotage came on, I would like lose my mind. Just <laughs> because I loved the song and I thought the music video was so cool. So I always liked the Beastie Boys and I always had like um, a layman appreciation of hip-hop. But when, like I said, when I kind of closed the door on uh, being a musician... What I realized too, and I said, I think I said earlier that I had like a really utilitarian uh, view of music in terms of like, I was always seeking out like what what I could take from it in terms of like as a guitar player, as a musician. Like, mm-hmm. and so when I kind of let go of that, uh, I, I gained a real love for hip hop because I wasn't looking for the guitar anymore. I just like listened to music just to listen to it. And it's amazing because I, I listened to music through the ears of a guitar player for like 10 years or more. So it's really um, a big transition when I started listening to stuff without that filter.
1: Well, you've spoken about how you pivoted towards literature and philosophy, and I personally believe that of sort of contemporary musical forms, hip-hop is probably the most literary because it's so focused on wordplay and poetics and um, things like that.
0: Definitely, like, you know, Illmatic by Nas, I think, is like one of the great works of poetry Mm -hmm. as much as I love like Bob Dylan, like I feel like the first musician to win a Nobel prize for literature probably should have been like a rapper, right? Like someone like Nas, um, who's been, been, um, a big player for so long. Um, and so I, when I started identifying more as a writer, I got more into the word play of hip hop because up until then I was pretty, indifferent about lyrics like like that's why i like the chili peppers because like anthony Kiedis is like so cringeworthy sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah we didn't talk about the lyrics to scar tissue but yeah i i realized when i was listening to it this
1: morning it's like i have no clue what he's saying about 75 percent of <laughs> the time in this song
0: <laughs> and i think that's kind of yeah that's kind of what i like about him because like his lyrics are like borderline nonsense
1: i think scar tissue might be from the point of view of a female character but that's neither here nor there.
0: That's interesting, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I've never really dug into their lyrics because when I listen to a Chili Pepper song, I still listen to them. And when I listen to it, it's more like because the lyrics are so nonsensical, I can just kind of like, it's almost like a blank slate for me to put my own lyrics onto it kind of thing. Exactly.
1: they the, the verge on impressionism.
0: <laughs> yeah, like I, I love the Chili Peppers more for their instrumentation. But like with hip hop, Most recently, like, Kendrick Lamar is this, like, extraordinary storyteller, Nas, too. And with uh, the Beastie Boys, when I grew up, I always liked them. And then when I started getting more into hip-hop, I, I, like, kind of revisited their albums. And I I was really surprised that they had all this, like, critical acclaim. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that they were such a, like, critical darling as a band. I always just thought they were, like, silly guys who made fun, catchy music. But it uh, turns out, like, like everyone, all the critics, like, love them, right? And, yeah, and I, I agree, they're, like, brilliant musicians. But what I started realizing at this point in my life was that, like, great art can be silly. <laughs> like, yeah. And uh, around this time, let's say it's, like, 2007 – I'm about 20 years old and, uh, I go to Ireland and because I was like, well, I'm going to Ireland. I should probably read Ulysses by Joyce. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's,
1: that's just a bit of a, a bit of a hill to climb. And, yeah. go on.
0: <laughs> so, uh, and when I was reading it, it was like, uh, my, my introduction to modernist literature, we'll say yeah. up to this point, cause I had, uh, just gotten back into school. And those were a lot of the courses I took. And so, like, got introduced to, like, Hemingway and Faulkner and uh, Virginia Woolf and the Wasteland. And um, as much as I love all that stuff, it's very serious. (laughs) Like, the, the Wasteland is very serious. And that's kind of what I thought Ulysses was going to be and ulysses like it has such a reputation and it's so like the big thing it's like oh have you read ulysses it's about the odyssey like that's like and he does stuff from the odyssey and that's and that's it's got this reputation uh for being this like very academic and very avant-garde
1: based on my own reaction just then it's a it's a it's a difficult book you know it's reading it as an achievement
0: so like my my attitude was like well i'm just gonna I'm there for, like, the summer, so I'll just take all summer to read it. And when I got into it, it's like, this is, like, dick jokes. Absolutely. uh, Farting. uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) He takes a shit in the outhouse. um, Like, his wife farts in his face. (laughs) (laughs) It's, like, really raunchy and, like, stupid puns. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, and I was, like, reading it, and I was laughing out loud at a lot of the stuff. And I'm like, man, this is, like, funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> i did not expect this book to be funny and it's it's one of the funniest books i've ever read in my life mm-hmm. and when people when i talk to people about it and they're like oh i'm kind of thinking about trying like giving it a shot i'm like man like it's like go into it with a very loose mind i'll say like mm-hmm. don't think that it's this like marble you know um edifice <laughs> yeah this like really arduous book because you you might deny yourself some of these laughs.
1: Oh, man. You make me think of the first time I read something by Samuel Beckett, and I thought it was going to be a real downer. And I was like, no, this is hilarious. Yeah, so-
0: like, uh, Waiting for Godot, especially when you watch it performed, mm-hmm. it's really funny. Uh, it's really funny. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, so, like, that that experience I had, you know, with the BC boys, because their whole thing was, like, when they went in to do their tracks and their verses, they were trying to make each other laugh. It's almost like uh last comic standing, right? Like they're kinda of like doing these bits trying to make the other guy laugh. Like what's the funniest thing we can we can say? Uh which I which I much prefer over like um some of the like toxic masculinity in, in hip hop of like yeah, yeah. you know, the the bling bling and although I do I do have like an uh appreciation for some of that stuff. Oh sure. But so like like the silliness of EC Boys and like Joyce, and then that cha- that changed how I read. Like Shakespeare. Shakespeare's got a lot of dick jokes too. Yeah, exactly. Like a lot of puns, a lot of dick jokes. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's like, man, these guys are all like goofballs. And uh, and I saw the movie Amadeus for the first time, mm-hmm. and it's just like, man, this guy is like the biggest goofball of all time. And that's how like I feel like I am. Like I'm this goofy guy. And it sort of like gave me permission to think that, like, no, you can do like substantial work that has like dick jokes.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so did you go to Ireland to attend school?
0: No, I went to Ireland because I was still kind of like struggling with what I wanted to do with my life. Cause I had kind of like given up on music and I went back to school to try and give it a shot and I was doing well with it, but I was still like, I don't know what I want to uh, focus on type thing. So a couple of my friends of mine were like, we're going to Ireland. You want to come? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and, uh, when I read Ulysses, uh, I became so obsessed with it. And I think Wikipedia had just kind of gotten on the go. Hmm. So like this book, Ulysses is such a like Wikipedia friendly book. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, I just like fall into these like rabbit holes of like all the references and allusions he was making. um, And I was living in Galway, actually. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and uh, not only is Galway beautiful, uh, but it's also where Nora Barnacle was born. So Nora Barnacle is uh, Joyce's, well, they ended up marrying very late in life, but he was like the love of his life, we'll say. And really his muse in a lot of ways. And so her family home is now like like a museum, I guess we'll say. Like, it's definitely like a heritage Spot for Irish culture, and uh, on Bloomsday. So, for those of you who aren't familiar, I think it's June sixteenth.
1: It is because that's also my wedding
0: anniversary. Oh, is that <laughs> is that why you guys picked that day?
1: We wanted to have the wedding around that time. It was a happy accident. Oh,
0: okay. Did you guys get married in Ireland?
1: No, we got married in New York. But my um, my husband is a big Joyce fan. So. Oh, I see. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, like on on Bloomsday. So, like uh, the whole premise of Ulysses is that um, over the course of a day. Um, these two characters reenact uh, basically the events of the Odyssey, and that day is June sixteenth. And so on that day, uh, they had a pretty cool event where people were just hanging out at Nora's, Nora Barnacle's home and doing like readings from the books. And uh, it was sort of like, I'm like, these are my people. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is the scene I want to be the be in. Right, and that that moment was really when I I, I went uh, whole hog we'll say, into the the literature and philosophy.
1: Is there anything else about this you wanted to talk about?
0: One of the things I'd like to talk about with uh, Sounds of Science, because it's kind of like a cheat, because I really love the Beatles too, and uh, the cool thing about uh, Sounds of Science and that album, Paul's Boutique, is that it's really like the apotheosis of old-school hip-hop sampling. Right. Uh, And People who don't know what sampling is, is literally just, you sample a part of the song and you kind of transform it into, like, a beat or a hook.
1: Yeah, like a, like an old song. You pick up a vinyl record, and you you take a drum beat or a, an organ stab or something, and you work it into your new song. Yeah.
0: yeah, and just, like, rap over it. And Paul's Boutique, the album that sounds the science, is off, is, like, just the paragon we'll say of sampling uh the the dust brothers are the djs who produced it and i think it was originally supposed to be just an instrumental album like it was just supposed to be all samples but the bcs convinced them to let them rap over it and i think like the popular belief is that uh they didn't pay for any of the samples but they did pay and clear the samples but it was just like a fraction of what it would cost now yeah, yeah. And I think like shortly after that they changed the intellectual property laws that you Yeah, know-
1: there was a really famous case whose name is escaping me right now, but this album came out before that. So yeah. sampling the legality of sampling was different when this album was made.
0: Yeah, so and Sounds of Science, there's a bunch of Beatles samples. Yeah. So I can't imagine what that would cost now. I don't think it would even be possible unless like, you know, you're looking at like a couple million dollars to play even just this one song. Mm -hmm. So this album is almost like a miracle that it exists because it's very much like a time and a place that cannot be recreated. (laughs) Right.
1: It's like you going to Ireland right before the uh, recession, (laughs) you know, they got this album out before the law changed.
0: (laughs) Yeah. They really uh, snuck out. They snuck it out of there. And uh, I think that's what's so brilliant about this record, uh, is the sampling.
1: Awesome. All right. So our final song, what is it?
0: Last song is called Atlas Rise by Metallica.
1: So Metallica, actually... Metallica and Red Hot Chili Peppers joined the featured on this podcast twice club, along with Madonna and Jim Henson.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got a Madonna reference in there.
1: Indeed. So this song is like recent-ish, 2016, I think?
0: Yeah, it's, I picked the song, part of the reasons, like, thinking about picking this, uh, all these tracks, was like, Looking through, uh, like, your guests and listening to the podcast, it's like, man, these people have, like, such, like, great taste in music and sophisticated choices. And um, one of the big lessons I learned being a writer, uh, James Baldwin has this quote. I think it's James Baldwin. And he said, becoming a writer involves removing masks you never thought you, you were wearing. Mm. and so becoming a writer over the last couple years i've really learned to get back in touch with things that i loved growing up uh and one of those things was like gothic literature we'll say Mm. um when i was a kid my mom used to read paul edgar and paul's bedtime stories she had like the raven memorized and even like Casco of Montelotto pretty much committed to memory oh wow and so she really turned me on to gothic literature um one of the things i i kind of wanted to do was maybe pick one of my first songs the theme from jaws uh <laughs> but i see like uh one of your last guests, adam clark he kind of like did everything that i would have liked to have done with, in terms of like growing up with horror movies and horror movie soundtracks
1: uh, if, if if the listeners are into horror horror film soundtracks i would recommend that episode
0: um yeah it's awesome yeah he has he has some good Picks, but what happened was uh when i got to university uh like growing up i loved genre literature like i loved horror i love stephen king i love science fiction fantasy tolkien all that stuff and then when i got to university i was exposed to like joyce and modernist literature i was kind of like man i gotta leave that stuff behind like that's not real literature right uh this is the real stuff like and and When I started writing, I was, like, trying to write, you know, these, like... Serious literature. Yeah, these, like, Raymond Carver-type short stories Mm -hmm. and just, like... Oh man, just like looking back, it's so cringeworthy. Like it's like that. I don't know if you follow the guy from your MFA class on Twitter. Like, oh god,
1: absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: So that was kind of like the kind of stuff I was trying to do, and I was like, man, this sucks. It's awful. I don't like re- writing it. I don't like reading it. No one wants to publish it. <sighs>
1: Good literature is boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: And so as I worked through it, I was kind of like, you know, like if you're going to be a writer, you're going to have to enjoy the process of writing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to drive yourself insane. So I thought more about like, what do I enjoy writing? And I, through that process, I got back into touch with um, stuff like Stephen King. So like I started rereading Stephen King novels and I was like, man, this is like smarter than I thought it was. Like I kind of like turned my nose up to it. And, uh, so like, that's why I ended up writing uh, a book about werewolves because, Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to bring that into my work because I felt like there is a demand for like more Gothic stuff. I think in Newfoundland literature, um, like there is, uh, Dale Jarvis, but he's more of a folklorist. Yes. I don't really see a lot of horror Gothic stuff that's set in Newfoundland and I think, Newfoundland is such a great setting for that type of story.
1: Yeah, the the culture there has such gothic elements, both in terms of the folklore, but also in terms of the actual lived history. Like for a very long time it was a very hard place for humans to live. Yes. And it's a very dark, scary place.
0: Yes, well, you see that. Like I love I love the writers now, like Lisa Moore and Michael Crummy and Wayne Johnston and these guys. And I love what they're doing. And like there's some of that there. There's some of that gothic there, but it's not turned up to eleven. We'll say
1: I can I can remember reading a review that described Lisa Moore's first novel Alligator as North Atlantic Gothic, um, and I can see it. Yeah. But yeah, it's not Stephen King genre fiction kind of a style. It's it's all through a air quotes literary lens,
0: and that's kind of where I wanted to to push. And I realized, you know, that's that's a an angle that I could take a layer that I could add to my work. And that was really the key that that opened it up for me as a writer, I think. Um, But bringing that back to Metallica, um, Mm -hmm. I Metallica, probably more than any other band as a teenager, I loved Metallica. You know, I don't think they're like more overly technical type thing. I do think that they have, like a nice punk element to their band that makes it more (laughs) They're not Dream Theater. Yes, they're not dream theater. They're not um uh like masturbatory, we'll say. Mm Uh they still have like catchy stuff and I love their lyrics. Like they have a lot of um like spooky stuff like they're they have a lot of horror content in their writing i discovered hb lovecraft through metallica i thought it was cool that these guys you know draw on the bible and they draw on you know poe and lovecraft and and that's kind of where i was at as a kid and also as like a guitar player and they're obviously extraordinary musicians all that stuff was my jam but like growing up when i kind of i felt like i kind of Outgrew it, you know, and I felt like uh, I was like whenever I heard, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what I used to do with a kid, uh, but I don't really like that stuff anymore. Uh, but about a year and a half ago, I started working, so I do like child and youth care work and a bit of home care work as like a day job. Um, mm-hmm. And I started working with this young man who has very advanced cerebral palsy, but he uh, like he loves heavy metal. Like, and his favorite band, and he went through like he was going through a huge Metallica phase when I was um, working with him, and I and I liked Metallica, and I had uh, so I was familiar with their music, so I was able to like give that to him, type thing. And I remember sitting with him and just being like, "Man, this is awesome! (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, I really like this." And uh, then I played their new album came out, and I played that for him, and I found myself tapping my foot. I mean, like, this is actually really good. And I, I end up getting really getting into this new album they put out. And not only have I kind of, like, rekindled this appreciation I have for Metallica, but also, like, metal in general. And, and not only was it, like, you know, rediscovering stuff that I liked as a kid, because I think that, like, now I'm realizing that, you know, if you like something now at 30 years old that you liked when you were, like, 12, then you should hang on to that. 'Cause that's that's special.
1: Probably that's a good indication that it speaks to something sort of core or uh inherent to your person, you know? Yeah. If you exactly, like it at twelve yeah. and at thirty, like that's okay, that's you probably just like it. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah, so like at twelve years old, I was reading It by Stephen King and I loved it. And then when I reread the book to watch the movie a year ago I loved it again and I'm like well clearly there's something here that I need to be paying attention to like there's something speaking to me and um, I, I've chosen the song as kind of like a representative like this stage of my life where uh, I'm trying to like get back in touch with the things that I liked and try to recognize those things that really resonate with me throughout my life um, it's kind of like this mantra I have from a Kanye song uh, Power he says uh the reality is catching up with me. Taking my inner child, I'm fighting for custody, <laughs> uh, and that's how I feel. Like it's like, what is my inner child? Like what what do I really resonate with that goes beyond social capital? Let's say because I was uh, hanging out with this guy with like advanced cerebral policy, and like he doesn't give a shit about like pitchfork or you know like what the cool kids are listening to. He just likes music for music listening to music with him was such a great experience because I, I I really got to like listen through his ears, you know? And I feel like, yeah, like just listen to music for your own ears. Like who cares about uh, what the cool kids like, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was um, a really cool experience to be able to rediscover Metallica with this guy and uh, and particularly, like, this song was uh, really great for me at this time in my life because uh, in 2014, I came back from Toronto. I did a six-month internship at uh, the Walrus magazine, and I was trying to use that as um, a trampoline, I guess, to to launch myself into like my writing career. And while I was there. Uh, my dad was diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's. And so I came home thinking like, okay, I'm going to come home for a couple months, get everything settled, and then I'm going to go back to Toronto and uh, get back to my life. (laughs) But what's interesting, my experience uh, with my father and his uh, illness was that like, my expectation was that basically – we're going to get him diagnosed and then we're just going to relinquish him onto the, the medical complex, <laughs> mm. you know, because as an outsider, my experience with illness was like family members who had cancer or, you know, my sister had kids. And it's kind of like when you go to the doctor with these things, there's this whole apparatus that's like ready for you kind of thing. Like they'll, we'll take you and we'll take care of you. Here's a plan. This is what we're going to do. And I kind of thought that's what was going to happen with like Alzheimer's dementia that, that isn't really there, um, and a lot of that care is on the family. So the family takes on a huge burden uh, when it comes to uh, people with dementia. And so like what I thought was going to be a couple months, I've been here ever since. And through the jigs and the reels, I ended up buying my parents' home And my sister built a new home so she could have a in-law apartment for my parents to live in. Mm. And, you know, I had no desire to own a home. Like when I first started, like part of when I decided I was going to be a writer, I was like, well man, I'm probably going to be poor for like most of my life. And well, that's fine. Like I don't have any desire to like live in a nice house If anything, like, I abhor the idea of owning a house you hate and doing a job you hate so that you can support yourself and, you know, feeling like you have to do these things. But yet, here I was feeling like I need to do my duty as a good son, and I bought this house that I didn't really want, and at the time, I was working at the university making a pretty good salary, but, like, I didn't really have a whole lot of money saved up to do the, like house buying thing responsibly yeah it was kind of like you know we we were talking about doing this and we were kind of like slowly building the plans on saving a bit of money but then one night my dad got sick and his health just spiraled like just fell off a cliff and it was something like you know these things that we thought were two years away are now here so like we need to like make this happen now And so I bought this house without really, you know, being in the financial position to do it. But I was like, okay, I'll, I'll figure it out. It'll be okay. And then the Newfoundland economy tanks, uh, the, the government starts slashing things left, right, and center. Uh, the MUN budget is gutted and I'm laid off. And so I'm like, oh shit, (laughs) I was not prepared for that. And so I took up uh, doing um, child youth care work, which like is okay, but it's not what I want to do. And I'm only really doing it so I can afford to have the house, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, I'm juggling this, this job, which I'm not super stoked on. And I have this old house that seems to like, as soon as I bought it, it seems like all the things that go wrong with the house started going wrong for me. Like it was like, I was like, okay, I got enough money to like ride this out, but then pipes broke roof started leaking the basement got flooded you know the car broke the dog got sick and it was like oh my god like what have i gotten myself into and inevitably i started having these emotions of like self-pity right like sure why is this happening to me now (laughs) like right when i was like supposed to launch my career and go down this path i'm like you know, burden with all this stuff. And this, the, the lyrics to this song, Atlas Rise, these lyrics at this time, like, really spoke to me. And it was another one of those things where it's like, oh, I heard the song at the right time in my life when I needed to hear it. It's about someone, or this, this is how I interpret it, about someone who is uh, really indulging in kind of, like, martyrdom. Mm-hmm. But then um, there's also this kind of, like, challenge to overthrow that, So, like, leading up to the chorus, it's like, all you bear, all you carry, all you bear, place it right on me. And then it says, die as you suffer in vain, own all the grief and the pain, die as you hold up the skies, atlas rise. So, it's kind of like, don't allow these things to crush you. Like, reject it. Like, just lift yourself up. Kind of like a like a motivational thing. Like that's how I interpret it. Um, sometimes James Hetfield gives off these like West Coast California libertarian vibes. So yeah. I don't know if this is about like <laughs> like Iron, <Ayn Rand. laughs> like Atlas well, Shrugged. But I'm going to choose to like not <laughs> think mm-hmm. that. <laughs>
1: It's been fantastic having a chat with you today.
0: Thanks, man. Thanks for having me with the class.
1: So if people are interested in reading your writing or listening to your podcast or other things like that, how can they find you?
0: The best way to find me would be on my website. Uh, You can find me braddunne.ca That'll bring you to my blog and that'll link you also to my podcast. I'm not so active on Twitter. I'm mostly active on Instagram. Uh, If you look up author brad don you find me and also on facebook
1: fantastic and uh, all of those links will be in the show notes as well so if you are on a website or app look at the notes and click on one of them many thanks to brad for sharing his life and music with us and to his big newfoundland dog india for the surprise guest appearance This Is Your Mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. Check out all of our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm. I've really been enjoying a part of our Scaritage, where Sarah and Adam romp through weird and wonderful Canadian horror movies. For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 24. That includes links to Brad's podcast, Deconstruction Junction, and to his book, After Dark Vapors. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at EarlKing, E-R-L-K-I-N-G. I love to hear from listeners. And if you want to support this podcast, the best way to do so is to leave a review on iTunes, or simply to tell your friends about it. I hope you've enjoyed today's mix. We'll see you next time.